0: As you've turned to Luke chapter 9, we're looking at uh, what's really a loaded question this morning. Have you ever been asked a loaded question? You know what I mean by that? That there's more to it than just what's right on the surface. A loaded question might be when your mother in law asks you if you enjoy dinner. There's not really many ways to answer that, you're kind of stuck. Or if your wife says, does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) Good luck with that. You can choose one answer and one answer only. It's a loaded question, right? But there are also questions that we're asked from time to time that they have a a deeper meaning and a deeper question because they carry more weight and they they carry a load of weight in that sense. Today we're going to be looking at what really is a loaded, kind of a big question for every one of us to answer, and two implications that come out of that type of question. So I want to read for us a passage of scripture, and it's a story that's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, but Luke's gospel in particular where we're looking, it's the confession of Christ by the apostle, disciple, Peter. It's verse 19 of Luke chapter 9. And we'll read a few verses, and then we'll build upon it as we go. While he was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. It's interesting that Luke begins by saying Jesus was praying. Now, if you read the Gospel of Luke over and over again, more than any other Gospel writer, he really focuses in on the connection that Christ had with God the Father through prayer. And this time of prayer must have been setting up something big. You know, we do the same thing, don't we? Before we have something big to do, we pray about it. We, we go to the Lord and we begin to pray and ask for his wisdom, his discernment, how we're going to do something And Jesus in the same way, praying because he knows what he's about to ask the disciples is actually going to be a question that separates them from everybody in their lives. It's a personal question. But it's a big thing. How big is this thing that he's asking them? He's saying them, who do people say that I am? That's the first question that he asks. Who are the people that we're around say that I am? When you're out on the town, when you're hanging out in the synagogues, when you're with your friends, what are people saying about me? The disciples heard these things, of course because they were in and around the people. They were moving in and around the people. They're the ones serving last week at the feeding of the 5,000. So they're overhearing the talk that's being spoken. They give three answers. They say that your John the Baptist, come back from the dead. They're wondering if your John, who was beheaded by Herod, come back from the dead. Because we know that John was a powerful preacher We know that he did incredible things. He was calling people to repentance. Could it be that God had raised him from the dead? No. Others are saying that you're Elijah the prophet or one of the ancient prophets who's come back. And and why would they say that? Well, it's because people were looking for this. I wanna remind you of this from Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Let's read this together. You'll see it on the screen there. It said, Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And with that, the Old Testament ended. No more. So you have to understand, there's been 400 years, right? This intertestamental period between Malachi and what happens in the events of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So everybody's been hanging on these last words. That's the last spoken revelation that they had. And so they've been waiting. Who's the prophet Elijah? Who's it going to be that comes back? We're looking for him. We're looking for an ancient prophet. And all of these people had opinions about who Jesus was, and they're a little bit confused because he won't ever come out and just say who he is, right? I mean, that's the funny thing about Jesus. He's moving, he's doing these things, and he heals people and he says, shh, keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. And now, he asks these disciples this, and he's setting them up for something. It's a bigger question, because he looks at them and says, Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter's awesome, and you maybe have a little bit of Peter in you. I sometimes have a little bit of what I feel like is Peter's spirit in me. I can jump right out of the boat and speak before I know about anything and find myself in all kinds of trouble, right? You ever find yourself in a little bit of that? But I guess everybody must have been kind of looking around like, who's gonna answer for us? And Peter, right to the front, says, you are God's Messiah. We're not supposed to have favorite passages of scripture, I don't guess, because it's all inspired, but when Matthew records this, Matthew says that Peter says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I, that's my favorite, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. I believe you're the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you are the Messiah, he says. Now, when he says that I believe you're the Messiah, It's interesting what he's saying, God's anointed one. They were looking for Messiah because they believed that Messiah was going to come and take over the Davidic throne, David's throne. David had been told there will always be someone to reign on your throne and they're waiting for that because they're tired of everybody having rule and dominion over them. Right now, the Romans have rule and dominion over them, and so they're looking for God's anointed one, but Peter uh, rightly gets that right when he says, you are the one, the Messiah who we've been waiting for, but there's something else behind that. He says you're divine. The Messiah's divine. He's different, he, he, he's not just the fact that he's going to rule, It's the fact that he's divine, he is God's son. And when you think about it, I mean, it's really not that different of a question than what people are asking today. And the question still applies to us, doesn't it? Because everybody has to do something with Jesus. You don't get a choice. To choose not to do something is to have actually made a choice. Jesus today is asking everyone through his word, through the messages that are preached, through the songs that are sung all around the world, who do you say that I am? Now, he, he doesn't ask, who does everybody else say that I am? Because we could answer that in, in a very different way maybe than Peter answered it, couldn't we? Because we don't know many people today that think Jesus is a prophet that's come back outside of the Muslims. They believe that, that he's a prophet. But Jesus never said, hey, I'm a prophet here to teach you something, In fact, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king all in one. He he has all three of those offices on his life as God's son. But we might answer it a little bit differently. Nobody's walking up to you going, It's John the Baptist come back from the dead. People don't even think about John the Baptist. They say, Well, Jesus is a good teacher. I mean, we love the golden rule, don't you? It's great. Do unto others. As you would have them do unto you. That is good. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. That is really good. Jesus is a great teacher amongst other teachers who've been incredible. Not all great teachers are Christians, are they? I had great teachers growing up that weren't believers. There's a difference, though, in what Jesus is trying to communicate to us today who are in this room listening to this. It's not a question of what does everybody else say that I am, it's what do you say that I am. See, every one of us has a personal responsibility to this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And what Jesus is not allowing the disciples to do is what so many of the people in that day were doing. They had a lot of thoughts about it, but they weren't speaking it out loud and living it out in that way. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Man, it gets personal all of a sudden because no one can answer this question for you but you. Bad news. Your spiritual pedigree doesn't answer the question for you. Some of you were cradle roll members of this church. Good for you. I love that. It's one of the most intriguing things about this church that I love is that we have multiple generations of families who have been in this church generation after generation after generation. I mean that's incredible, isn't it? But outside of a good trivia fact doesn't help you in eternity. Won't make a difference. Does it matter what your grandparents thought about Jesus, what your wife thinks about Jesus, what your husband thinks about Jesus, what your children think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And we might have all manner of things that we like to think about, but to say it, who do people say that I am? When we speak that out loud, man, it means something for us to say, I believe he is God's son, the Messiah. The Christ, the son of the living God, as Matthew records, the Messiah, the anointed one. It solidifies his life in me for me to be able to say, I believe he is the Christ, the Messiah. Why? Because if he's the Christ, the implications of that are huge. No longer are there many ways to heaven. I said this a few months ago, but I just feel like the Lord wants us to be reminded of this again. If you believe there are many ways to heaven, you don't believe in Christ. Don't be mistaken this morning. This is not a situation where you can have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't work that way. If he's the Christ, for us, the implication is that there's one way to heaven. It's through Christ the Son. And the Bible says it like this through the gospel. The Bible says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sin, and yet God was pleased to send Christ to die for us so that we might be raised to life and have our relationship with God the Father restored because it was separated by sin in our lives. We had been separated from God. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we say he's the Messiah, what we're saying is he, He's our Savior and our Lord. Can I ask you a question? Let me just make it even more clear. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you came to the realization that you were separated from God because of your sin, and if you died, you would spend eternity separated from God the Father because of his judgment upon your life for your sin? And then the only remedy for that was for you to place your faith in Christ, his son who died on the cross in your place and that you would ask him to forgive you of your sins and you would repent of your sins. Do you know what that word means? Change of direction. My life was running down this path And now I have changed directions. My focus is Christ, my Savior and Lord. Because he has saved me, I want to live for him. Has there ever been a time in your life where you are certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God saved you? That's the question this morning. Who do you say that I am? You can say, well, I I like Jesus. I think he was, I, I mean, incredible. He did miracles, but but is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Because out of that question then comes some implications that he began to unfold for the disciples, right? And and it's interesting to, to read on and see what's happening with the disciples because as Jesus tells them, who do you say that I am? Then he tells them that there's something that's going to come about in his life that's going to change everything. Let's read verse 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. It's necessary that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Jesus prophesies that he is dying to live again. He's going to be dying so that he may live again. And why did he tell them to keep this a secret? Well, he doesn't want anyone to lose sight of the mission. He doesn't want anyone to distort the mission because his mission was always salvation. And remember, everybody that's been around him has been wowed by the miracles. They've been wowed by the bread that they got and and the food that they received last week as we studied the feeding of the 5,000. They love that. They love the idea of throwing off Roman occupation but that's not the most important thing. Who's in charge is not the most important thing because ultimately salvation was the mission. That's the most important thing. And he was never going to lose that singular focus in his life. And so he tells the disciples, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell them that I'm the anointed one. Let this play out because there's some things that have to happen. Did you notice what had to happen? I have to suffer, be rejected, ultimately be killed and be raised on the third day. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? A lot of people have a little bit of trouble with this. I don't believe someone should have to die in my place. I think that's immoral that God would punish someone else instead of me. Immoral is the greatest blessing of your life that God would punish someone else instead of you, because what the scripture tells us is something very important, read this with me on the screen from Hebrews chapter nine and verse 22. It says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness anywhere. Doesn't happen. So it's your blood or it's Christ's blood. How does it work? See, in the Old Testament, what were they doing? They were sacrificing animals for a covering of sin, the scripture tells us. But when Jesus Christ died, he cleansed us from sin. Do you see the difference there? There's a covering of sin and a cleansing of sin that's taking place. The cleansing is that when Jesus died on the cross, God was satisfied to place all of your sin, all of your guilt on his shoulders, and he died once for all, for all humanity in our place, so that we might be saved. Nothing needed to to, to take that off of of first place, first priority in Jesus' life because anything that would, would, would derail that would mean ultimately that the mission failed. As God's son, he came to die. One who was born to die so that his blood would be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what Jesus is saying is is really important, right? And sometimes the disciples don't get it. Do you remember the other gospels remind us that Simon says, absolutely not. We're not gonna let this happen. And Jesus says, you gotta get behind me, Satan. Simon, I love it. He gets it right and he gets it wrong. He gets it right and he gets it wrong. And you do too, and I do too. Aren't you glad to know that God uses the frailest among all of us to do great things for him? We don't have to be superhuman. We just have to be us with Jesus living in us and God does great things. He's able to do that. And and Simon is, is saying, I don't want you to die for me, but if Jesus doesn't die for him, Simon can't be saved. And it's the same for us. If Christ doesn't die in our place, we're hopeless because of our sin. So Jesus continues by saying in verse 23, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This big question led to an implication, Jesus is going to die. And now he takes it a step further and he says that if we want to follow him, we're going to daily die and we're going to identify with him just like he has said he will do. And you have to understand how shocking it must have been because this is a call to reject self-preservation for them. Jesus says, take up your cross. I mean, for us, think about it like this. Pick your firing squad and have them tag along. Find the executioner at the gallows and bring him with you. Grab your electric chair and follow me. These people knew what the cross was. The first time they had experienced the cross and seen what that was like, was not when Christ was crucified. The Romans were doing this all the time as a public display of what they would do to people that stepped out of line. I mean, this was, this was something that you would see on the roadsides. It didn't happen in late night vigils in the quiet of some place. This happened in public for everyone to see. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, it's not just some slogan. It's a penetrating thought into their souls. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, take up your cross. Now you remember the question that he asked earlier. He said, these people, what do they say? But what do you say? Do you know what that did? It separated. Do you notice that? What does everybody else say? But now what do you say? There's a separation that takes place. We're called out of darkness into his light. We're called to live in the world, be not of the world, but live in the world, not of the world. You understand that we are aliens, strangers that are living here. And this question, when we answer it, it naturally does that. For those of us who are in Christ, no matter how uncomfortable that might make us or, or how we might feel about it, what happens is when we come to Christ and we answer this question, it's a separator, I think that what's tough about that is that a lot of us want to fly under the radar. We like to be liked. If you don't like to be liked, that's not normal. Did you know that? If you didn't, let me help you. If you like for people not to like you, something's off there. We want to be appreciated, we want to fit in. Have you been around teenagers lately? That doesn't change. And yet this question, it actually pushes us so far apart from the world with these implications because what Jesus is saying is that the road that he walked in suffering and denial of what was actually his, well, what was his? Philippians two tells us he had it all, a name throne, glory, angels serving him. It was all his. I love what Paul says in that. Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. There's a denial there. Well, It's what McLaren, this ancient writer said so long ago. He says, it's not a call to deny specific things. And that's where we make the mistake sometimes. Oh, I'm gonna follow Christ, which means I'll deny this one little part of my life or this thing or that one thing or this or that. It's it's not the specific things in your life. It's your entire self. The denial of self at the very core of who you are To deny that takes so much more than to deny one little specific thing, doesn't it? To to actually deny self is actually denying the very essence of me so that Christ may be all in me and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians says. That's the life that we're living. It's not a life unto ourselves. It's not a life that we create where we pick the things that we deny and we feel good about that because I didn't do that one thing or I didn't do this thing or I'm not gonna do that anymore. It's the denial of everything that I want so that everything he wants is in me. How hard is that? Impossible. Can't do it. Except for the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. You cannot do it. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit living the new life in Christ that we're able to do these things. And I understand that this absolutely runs against everything that we hear in our culture today in modern thinking. We struggle to understand anything about denial. I've said it to you before. How crazy is it that you could order lunch right now and have it waiting on you at home? How crazy is it that you could do a last minute gift shop and have it delivered to your home today? Never even have to leave. We don't understand anything about the concept of denial. We see, we want, we get, we do. And we're told not just in terms of our shopping habits, our buying habits, but we're told this, live your truth. Where do you find that in the Bible? Did Jesus ever tell us to embrace Who we wanted to be? Think about that for a minute and and follow the implications of that. It's not what I want, it's what he wants. It's not where I want to live, it's where he wants me to live. It's not where I want to serve, it's where he wants me to serve. It's not who I want to be, it's what he wants me to become. When I understand that, then denial is not living my truth or embracing myself. It's a daily constant battle of choosing between myself and the kingdom. It's clear cut. Because it's me or the kingdom. And so what that means for us is that as we follow Christ, the American dream may not be promised, folks. You can't find it in the scripture that God promised you a great 401k, wonderful house, great health, no problems. It's, it's, it's just not there. If you get that, good. It does simplify some things. But that's not the road that Jesus laid out for the disciples, is it? when he said, if you believe what you just said, that I'm really the Messiah, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise on the third day. And if you really believe what you just said, join me. Grab a cross and come with me. That doesn't sound like the gospel message that we're hearing much in our country anymore, does it? Where we're told that Jesus is just love and it's all wonderful. He, he's the answer to every one of your problems. You're never gonna have, you come to Christ, you'll never have problems. Pick a firing squad and have them come after you. Go to the gallows, measure the rope, and have them come after you. Bring it with you. Because if you want to follow me, you must die. I don't know that I like that version. Do you? That version sounds harsh. That version sounds a little bit different than than what we're led to believe or what we even want to believe. But the idea that we would live a life without suffering or the idea that we would live a life without denial is is not the gospel. Someone once said about this passage of scripture that there are two questions to answer from it. Heaven or hell, pick. Heaven or hell, okay. I don't know about you, for me, that's an easy one. Heaven, I'll take heaven over hell any day. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But then the second one is heaven or earth. Heaven or hell, heaven or earth. Do you struggle to have a heavenly mind and long for a heavenly home and long for things that are coming that will be eternal and and not just the pleasures of this earth. I struggle with that. I struggle with it daily. It's hard to deny myself and and take up that cross. It's hard to put my wants and wishes and dreams on the back burner and say, Lord, what are your wants, wishes, and dreams for my life and and follow after that because about every time I take a step this way, something makes me wanna take a little half step off. Oh yeah, I know I'm going this way, but what about over here? Oh yeah, I know we're going this, way. what I over here? I mean, that's what happens. So it's, it's heaven or hell. And for a lot of us, that's the easiest part. We, we get that. Nobody wants to go to hell, but heaven or earth, it gets very different, doesn't it? Because we love the earth. We love what it offers us. We love what we seemingly think we get from it. And Jesus says, deny it. And follow me. What would change tomorrow in your life If you knew you had picked heaven over hell, but that you woke up tomorrow and said, it's going to be heaven over earth today. What would be different? Would it change how you spend your time? Would it change how you spend your mental energy? Would that change your conversations? Because maybe instead of trying to fit in somewhere and, and just fly under the radar, you might think, oh man, I, I need to be bold with the gospel in this moment today because it's heaven over earth. And it doesn't matter what I'm thought about as long as it's heaven over earth today. Would it change how you spend your money? Would Jesus actually be Lord of the checkbook, Lord of the debit card, Lord of the credit card? Would it change those things if it was heaven over earth today for you? Because I think that's the question that we have to ask tomorrow when we wake up, the rest of the day today. I mean, every day that we wake up that we're choosing daily, he says, to deny the very core of what we want so that we can be living in the core of who he made us to be in Christ, heaven over earth. I love that. You've heard someone say they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I don't think we have that problem. I think if we spend a little time in front of the the lens of the Holy Spirit looking in our lives, we might discover that we're so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. You remember that Joshua had led the children of Israel after Moses' passing. He's been Moses' right-hand man. And he's going to be the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And they go and they fight and they start claiming land and taking it and taking it and taking it. But all around them they can see people who are not serving the one true God. And Joshua has this great moment where he looks at everybody and he says, you can serve them, you can serve them, you can serve them, but you got to choose today who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You remember that declaration? What's lost a little bit in that is the construction of what he says in the choosing, He doesn't say make a choice once and for all. He says, choose today, choose tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. You're choosing again and again and again and again to serve the Lord. That's what we're doing right here. Denial. Today. Denial tomorrow. Choosing today, choosing tomorrow to serve the Lord. So I wanna ask you, have you answered the question, is it heaven or hell for you? Where where are you gonna spend eternity? Have you given your life to Christ? I mean, that's the fundamental question. We try to ask it every week in here because there's no more important question that we could ask you than do you know Christ as Savior? If you're uncertain about that, can I tell you there's a way to be certain? I'd love to talk with you about that. You don't have to live in wonderment about that. And if you've chosen heaven over hell, have you chosen heaven over earth? If you haven't today as a believer, then there's probably some pruning that needs to happen so that we can start to bear the fruit of righteousness in keeping with who we are in Christ. Let's make sure that tomorrow, when God takes us out of our homes into the world, that we can say we denied ourselves and took up our cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray now for our time of response that our hearts would be open and receptive to the Holy Spirit's leading. God, for the person that has not made the decision yet or they're uncertain about the decision of whether it's heaven over hell, I pray today that they would be saved, God. I'm, just, I'm asking you to save someone. And maybe it's just a person who's struggling to know whether or not they're saved. Lord, would you give them the assurance of salvation today? Would they seek that out, Lord? May the Holy Spirit minister to them. Father, for us, that we would choose today to serve you. And in our lives serving you, Lord, we would choose heaven over earth today. Over the the whole thing that we want to fit in or the the pressure that we feel in our lives to conform. Lord, may we be conformed into the image of the Savior. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.